Psalm 60 in your Bibles. The title of the message this morning is, Has God Abandoned Us? Has God Abandoned Us? Ask for your prayers this morning, as this is a fairly thick piece of scripture, and I need all the help I can get. Psalm 60 is the final of the so-called historical psalms, which is set during the lifetime of David. You remember, we've had a nice long sequence of these psalms, beginning in Psalm 51. The title is the longest introductory inscription found in the entire Psalter. So the inscription that you have recorded for you there in the beginning of Psalm 60, that's the longest introduction found in any of the Psalms. Now I want to read it for you in the English Standard Version. It says, when he, talking about David, strove with Aram Naharim and with Aram Zabar. And when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. What is David talking about? What is this inscription? When did this occur? And what does this mean? These are all very pertinent questions as you come across the 60th Psalm in the Word of God. We believe these battles occurred much later in the life of David after he became king and ruled for a considerable number of years. If we conclude that this portion was written during the latter days of David's kingship, then Psalm 60 becomes a very important historical document as the great commentary Mr. David Derek Kidner says, quote, Except for this psalm and its title, we should have no inkling of the resilience of David's hostile neighbors at the peak of his power, end quote. Now, I'll just stop here and let me say that if we can fixate the writing of this psalm, at when David was on the throne in Israel at the height of his power, this is a very rare historical piece found in the Word of God that lets us know exactly what David was experiencing during this uh, very victorious time, by and large, in his life and ministry. According to every other account we have of this time period of David's reign in Israel, this was a time of nearly uninterrupted military victories. Consequently, there are at least two things which make Psalm 60 a strange anomaly. Now, Psalm 60 is kind of weird. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's not weird because it teaches weird stuff, but it's weird because of what you're about to see and what I'm about to show you. All right? Here's why. Number one, the title of the psalm is about a great military victory or sequence of military victories. Namely, Joab's victory over Edom in the Valley of Salt. But the psalm itself is written about a tragic defeat. So the title and the inscription at the beginning of Psalm 60 says that there was great victory in the Valley of Salt. But I want to read to you two key passages out of Psalm 60. It's in the first verse and the tenth verse. 
Notice with me, the Bible said, O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. That's in the latter part of the first verse. But then notice verse 10 of Psalm 60. He said, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. Now, do you see what's a little bit strange about this passage? In the beginning, in the inscription, it's written about tremendous victories. And 2 Samuel chapter 8, which is the historical background for this great psalm, records nothing but victories. But the 60th psalm, the content of the psalm, suggests defeat. What does this mean? Is David contradicting himself? Did we find an error in the Bible? I don't know. Let's keep going forward. The title of the psalm is set dur during David's many and geographically widespread victories. So when you look at, as we're going to in a moment, 2 Samuel chapter 8, that portion of the word of God records nothing but tremendous military conquest and victories on the battlefield. Now, there may be a lesson in this for us. The background of Psalm 60, as I said, is in 2 Samuel 8, 1 through 14. But if you study the book of 2 Samuel, and you study the book in detail, 1 Samuel ends with the death of King Saul, really a suicide on the battlefield. But then, the first, then 2 Samuel begins... And I'm going to read this to you. There are at least five important events which transpire immediately before David's military conquest. Uh, what God says about David in 2 Samuel chapter 8. So I want to give you five key events that happen immediately before 2 Samuel 8. Number one, David finally is crowned king officially over Israel in 2 Samuel 5 verses 1 through 5. So David finally takes the throne in chapter 5. Then he conquers Jerusalem and he declares Jerusalem to be his capital city immediately afterwards. So 2 Samuel chapter 5 verses 6 through 16 record David's conquering of Jerusalem and him making Jerusalem the capital of Israel. Thirdly, David defeats the Philistines definitively on the battlefield in 2 Samuel 5, verses 17 through 25. Do you see the succeeding events that are leading up uh, to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8? Uh, David is winning. David is winning big. And the biggest win of David is yet to come. Fourthly, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem in order to focus the people's worship properly in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So the ark is going to be brought into Jerusalem, and it's going to be the focal point of the worship and the praise of the Israelites in that great city. You know that as the time goes on, Jerusalem is going to play a key role as ground zero for God's redemptive purposes in Jesus Christ. It's going to be the physical location of the tabernacle for uh, a number of years. And then when Solomon comes along, it's going to be the physical location of the temple. And uh, much of the ministry of Christ is centered around the city of Jerusalem. And fifthly, perhaps most importantly, 
the Lord will send Nathan the prophet with the most powerful message David would ever receive in all of his lifetime. And it is that David would establish a throne over the entire world forever. This is a great messianic promise. This is a promise that Jesus Christ would come from the line of David in the tribe of Judah. And this occurs immediately before David's great military victories recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 8. So 2 Samuel 7, David receives what's called the Davidic covenant from God. And that is that God is going to send a Messiah and that Messiah is going to conquer and rule the world and that Messiah is going to be from David's own family. Now this is important. And it was after these five key events, David being crowned king, him conquering Jerusalem, declaring it the capital, defeating the Philistines, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and receiving the Messianic promise and the Davidic covenant. It was these five key events which immediately precede the events that we have recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 8. This represents the high point of David's life and ministry. There was no better time, no higher time, no greater time in the historical writings of King David than what you're reading about him in these early chapters of the book of 2 Samuel. And it was this incredible blessing of God, these victories that God gave him. David's finally going to be king. David finally conquers Jerusalem. He brings the ark. He gets the messianic promise. His seed and his family is going to rule the world, God tells him. I'd say that's a pretty big deal. If God came to you today and it was almighty God himself and he said, Hey, bub, your family's going to rule the world one day. You'd probably think that was a pretty big deal. That'd probably light a fire underneath you. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you would have a fire burning in your bosom for the word of God and for the glory of God, knowing that your family was going to play a key role in God retaking planet Earth from very powerful demons that have been ruling it now for millennium, which is what David would have thought and what it is actually. Now, this is important because now you see the historical setting of Psalm 60. It's important when God gives you an introduction and an inscription like that in a psalm, it's a lengthy one, probably good to find out exactly what that means. There ain't no fluff in the Word of God, folks. You know that? And there's no part of it that we don't need. We need every single bit of it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And all Scripture is Psalm 60. We need this great psalm in our lives, don't we? God is so good to us. I want to read you some of the high points of 2 Samuel chapter 8. You can just turn there or you can listen because I've sort of selected out the parts pertinent to our study this morning. The Bible says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Methag and Mach from the control of the Philistines. David also, also defeated the Moabites. Moreover, David fought 
Hadadezer, son of Rahab, king of Zobach, when he went to restore his control along the Euphrates River. Now, these are the areas mentioned specifically in the 60th Psalm. David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. That means that he maimed their horses so that they could no longer pull chariots for war. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobach, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Does that sound familiar? That's the inscription of Psalm 60. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. You have the often repeated phrase in this historical piece, God gave David victory everywhere he went. This was a mighty man of God, ladies and gentlemen. This is one of the greatest human beings that has ever lived, King David of Israel. He was not only a brilliant politician, he was a brilliant military general and commander. And he was brilliant because of God. Didn't say that David got the victory by David's hand. It said that God gave Vic David victory everywhere he went. Now, why such sad words in Psalm 60 then? Well... When we put Psalm 60 together with 2 Samuel we, and we read between the lines, it seems the Edomites saw an opportunity when David was away from Jerusalem battling along the Euphrates River. They must have staged an, upriding and, an uprising excuse me, and succeeded to the degree that Psalm 60 records for us. What we're doing is reading between the lines here. David then sent Joab, who was a chief commander, to quell the unrest of the Edomites. Joab was victorious, as the title of Psalm 60 suggests. And David then returns to Jerusalem and completes the conquest of the Edomites. Joab killed 12,000 of these Edomites, as Psalm 60 says, and David is credited with dispatching 18,000 of them in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 13. Here it is. Here's the sermon. The lesson we learn from this is that even during times of incredible blessings and victory, we still can and will experience great defeat. At your highest point in your life, when you're closest to God in heaven, you can be sure no matter how close to God you are, no matter how strong in faith you are, no matter how good of a Christian you are or think you are, you will still experience defeat. Somebody says, well, that's not very encouraging. I think it's very encouraging for many reasons, and we're going to talk about that. Here you had certain cities, here you had David's throne being established with the messianic promise David's going to have a Messiah, 
And that Messiah is going to save and rule the world in righteousness and for the glory of God for eternity. Here you had David, everywhere he went, the Bible tells us, twice over at least, that God gave him great victory. Victory over people that were stronger than him. Victory over fortresses, hopefully as we'll get to at some point this morning, over fortresses that were deemed to be impregnable at the time. And God gave David victory, and in the midst of the victory, the Israelites still are suffering defeat. How is this possible? As it was true in the days of David, so it is true for us today. In our fallen world, we can expect that even during times of tremendous blessing from God, things will still go tragically wrong. Let us learn the lesson of being faithful to God in times of both blessing and burden. Oftentimes, it is when we walk closest to the Lord ourselves, we can be sure certain errors in our theology and ethics will be exposed. This usually happens because we begin to become slightly prideful about our spirituality and God will surely remind us that we have a long way to go yet. He is faithful to do that and thank him for it. I have several points this morning which help us to better understand the message of the 60th Psalm. Number one, experiencing defeat in the midst of victory in verses one through four. Number two, A prayer and an answer to prayer in verses 5 through 8. And number three, two life lessons to be learned in verses 9 through 12. Experiencing defeat in the midst of victory, verses 1 through 4. A prayer and an answer to that prayer in verses 5 through 8. And two life lessons to be learned in verses 9 through 12. Everybody ready? Say amen. Here we go. While we do not know the particulars of this tragic defeat the Israelites faced at this time, what we do know is that it was a great disaster. David communicates how great this disaster actually was with two powerful images. Number one, he says it was like an earthquake. And number two, he says it was like we were drunk. He said it was like an earthquake, and he said it was like being inebriated. Let's talk about this. I want to show you what the Bible says in verse number 2. He said, you have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its, its breaches, for it totters. Perhaps there's nothing more terrifying than an earthquake. The Haiti earthquake of 2010 devastated the metropolitan area of Port-au-Prince and left an estimated 1.5 million survivors homeless. The earthquake hit at 4.53 p.m. on January 12, approximately 15 miles southwest of the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince. The initial shock registered a magnitude of 7.0 on the Richter scale and was soon followed by two aftershocks of magnitude 5.9 and 
More aftershocks occurred in the following days, including another one of magnitude 5.9 that struck on January 20th in a town 35 miles west of Port-au-Prince. Haiti had not been hit by an earthquake of such enormity since the 18th century, the closest in force being a 1984 shock of magnitude 6.9. A magnitude 8.0 earthquake had struck the Dominican Republic in the year 1946. And everybody who had television and was tuned into the news at that time can remember the horrifying scenes. My understanding that our church here had a missionary that had gone there and done some great work at the time. The people that were left homeless, the children that had become orphans overnight, parents that had to bury their children, people rescuing folk out of the rubble. It was a tragic time for the Haitian people. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced, died, perished in this earthquake. And listen, it's easy to understand why David uses the destructive power of an earthquake to, ex to describe and illustrate the defeat that they experienced. What's something about an earthquake? It comes on you unnoticed. At the time when you least expect it. Nobody can, years ago, especially in the time of the writing of the 60th Psalm, earthquakes came suddenly, didn't they? With no one knowing, there was no geologist to be able to read the Richter scale and be able to tell when there might be an earthquake to try to warn people. Earthquakes were sudden and they were terrifying and they were disastrous. And David said, in the midst of our great victories, Lord, we experienced a sudden, a catastrophic, a terrible, a destructive defeat. And it shook them. It shook them to the core of their being. Somebody says, well, I've never lost a military campaign on the battlefield. Somebody says, well, I've never been through an earthquake before. I like what the great, there's a quote I like to quote from Mr. Charles West, which has been a blessing to many people over the years. He said, quote, we turn to God for help when our foundations are shaking, only to learn that it is God who is shaking them, end quote. Think about that. Somebody says, well, I've never been through an earthquake before. No, but oftentimes God allows earthquakes in our lives, doesn't he? He allows earthquakes in our lives, and very often earthquakes hit us suddenly, unnoticed, unexpected, and they can be destructive. Things are going well. They're going too well. I also as I always like to say, how's things going, brother? They're going too well. Because I know that it's just a moment of time that an earthquake can strike and rattle everything to its foundations. Somebody says, well, what kind of earthquakes do we experience, Brother Joel? Well, we experience earthquakes which remind us that we live in a sinful world, don't we? If you have been, ever had great victory, great blessing in your life, and it's consecutive victory and blessing over and over again, and it seems like nothing can stop the blessings of God from flowing into your life, and you get hit with a sudden calamity, a sudden catastrophe, in the midst of that, God is reminding us that this world is not our home. 
As great as the blessings are, as great as the victories are, they're only temporary. You will experience loss. You will experience heartbreak. You will experience sickness and illness and disease. You will experience betrayal. And it comes upon you very often like an earthquake. And it shakes you to your core. It crumbles everything around you, doesn't it? And sometimes the defeats that we face that are sandwiched, these defeats that come on the heels of great victories and consecutive victories, sometimes those are the most painful. Those defeats. Like David said, Lord, where are you? Lord, have you abandoned us? Have you rejected us? Here we are conquering for you. You give us victory. You give us blessing. You give us the enemy into our hand. It seems that nothing can stop David, doesn't it? And yet, all of a sudden, like an unregistered earthquake, these calamities hit. When we are hit with the earthquake of being reminded that we live in a sinful world and this world is not our home, God is reminding us that we need Him. We needed Him in the victory. Everywhere David went, God gave him victories. But then he, def he experienced defeat. And guess what? We need God in the defeats. We need God in the ebb and in the flow. We need God in the valley and on the mountain. Yes, it's true, isn't it? When these sudden earthquakes come upon us and begin to shake our foundations to the core, what God is trying to do is humble our hearts and cultivate faith in us. That's what this entire psalm is about. Here you have consecutive, wonderful mountaintop victories, and then bam, you're hit with an earthquake. What's going on? How'd this happen? What'd we do? How is this even possible? The earthquakes of our lives remind us to not be self-dependent or self-sufficient. Boy, is that, the, I'll tell you, for 21st century American people, that's the message right there. Do not be self-sufficient or self-dependent. There's only one who's self-deficient, self-sufficient. We're self-deficient. He is self-sufficient. When we believe that our sufficiency is found in ourselves, what we're doing is we're playing God. Because the Bible said there's only one who's self-sufficient and self-existent. And it's the Lord God Almighty. One of the things that God is reminding us of when we experience sudden earthquakes of defeat in the midst of victory is that we are to worship Him who blesses and not worship the blessings. Boy, is that a nuance that is so subtle. Folks, everything that you have, all your talents, all your gifts, all your family, everything God has ever given you, it's come from God. You haven't, I know it's going to, you know, we, we live in the land of opportunity. I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you work hard enough and you do all that you're supposed to do, then God will bless you. 
Well, folks, listen, there are people that live in third world countries that work all day just enough to get food for that day. We had some friends of ours that were missionaries to Kenya, Africa. And they said that a man works all day for just enough food for his family. And if, and if it was a good day at work, he got enough money for tea. And think about that. Work all day just to feed your family for one day. And you might get tea. That God's still blessing those people, isn't he? He's taking care of them. They're working as hard as they possibly can. And they don't have any of the luxuries and amenities of Western culture like what we have. It's not our hard work that sustains us. It's God that sustains us. Somebody said, well, I've gotten everything by my own labor. Look at all that I've earned for myself. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that it is God, God Almighty, who has given you all good things. It's God himself that's the focus of our worship. Sometimes when we experience sudden, catastrophic defeat in the midst of victory, it's almost like being drunken. All of a sudden, victory, victory, victory. It's a great party, and before you know it, they've had way too much to drink. And they're stumbling around inebriated, and they're impaired in their judgment all of a sudden. Look at what he said. That's not my word. That's what the Bible said. Verse 3, he said, You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Sometimes when we experience sudden defeats in the midst of great victory, it's staggering. It impairs us. All we can focus on is the defeat. I can't believe this happened to me. I can't believe the, the job is crumbling. I can't believe the company's going out of business. I can't believe mom's dying. can't believe dad's passing away. Here everything was going great. And it's like all of a sudden this defeat has impaired you to where you can't hardly do anything else. It's all you can think about. The focus of your life becomes this terrible defeat and it's impairing, it's inebriating. It's like being drunk and staggering around. You're no good at work. You can't focus. Now, some of us have maybe never been there before. But if you haven't, thank God for it. But when you experience a tremendous defeat and setback, it's like, being, it's like being stunned. It's like having too much to drink and stumbling around. All you can focus on is yourself, your self-pity. It's what David and the Israelites are like. This defeat was so sudden, it was like being at a great party. And all of a sudden, everybody's had too much to drink. And they don't know what to do with themselves. They're hit with a defeat. It's tragic. When we allow ourselves to become impaired by focusing too much on our defeats, it impairs our ability to function properly in our jobs when we experience terrible defeat. It impairs our ability to function properly in our marriages. It, it impairs our ability to function properly in our spiritual lives. 
Final point in closing. What is the cause of this defeat? I don't know. That's the answer. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But I can give you some clues. Let's look at verses 1. Verse 1. He said, O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. The Bible says that God is angry with someone. Who is God angry with? It's not David, because usually David will tell you if God's angry with him. It's not Joab, because God gave Joab a great victory. But somebody in the camp of the Israelites at this time had done something to make God angry. God is also not angry with the Israelite people corporately. So it's not like he's angry at all of them. He's not angry at David specifically. He's not angry at all Israel. But there's something in the camp. Something has happened amongst a few somebody somewhere. You know that not all of them have made God angry because look at verse 4. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. So here you have it. There are some that fear God, but there's also some that God's angry at. Why is God angry? Well, he doesn't tell us. But here's what we do know. In Joshua chapter 7, after the great commander, probably the other great commander in the history of Israel, was the man Joshua. And after Joshua and the Israelites experienced a tremendous victory over Jericho, you remember Achan? takes some stuff that he's not supposed to take from the city. After God commanded him, he said, don't take nothing from them. Lay the city to waste. Kill everything, everybody. And what Achan does is he takes, he steals something from the city. The very next city that the Hebrew people go up to conquer in Joshua 7 is the city of Ai. A-I in the English Bible. And the city of Ai puts a whooping on the Israelites. And Joshua and his friends fall on their faces before God. And they say, Lord, what happened? And God says, why are you even praying? He said, somebody stole something. God said, there's somebody in the camp who has done something that I commanded you guys not to do. You guys are disobedient. And finally, this man Achan comes out. And the Bible says that he was stoned in the presence of all the people for what he'd done. And after that, the Hebrew people were able to take the city of Ai. But it wasn't before they had suffered a tremendous loss because of the sin of one. All it takes is the sin of one often to ruin it for everyone. It was that true in Joshua chapter 7? The Bible said it was true. Does it make it right? I don't know. God thought it was right. So what does this mean for us? Well, isn't it true that churches often fail to achieve great victories because of the sin of a few? Churches are often destroyed because of the sins of a divisive minority. Denominations, whole denominations, great denominations, fail to achieve their highest potential because of bad, maybe just one bad leader that brings a reproach on everybody else. It's the same It was true in the days of Joshua and Achan and David and Joab and Israel. It's true for us today. Somebody says, well, what do we do? Let's take them out in the parking lot and stone them. 
Well, I don't know that that's necessarily why we have these historical documents recorded for us. But I have two points. What can we do? What can we do when it seems as if the sins of a few minority are spoiling it for the rest of the majority? The first thing that you can do, number one, is make sure that we are not the ones holding everyone back. You see this happening in, uh, you know, I watched the Michael Jordan documentary, Last Dance. Somebody pray for me. I enjoyed it. But that uh, was great. And, uh, you know, Michael Jordan stepped out of the Chicago Bulls for a short period of time. And the Bulls suffered some defeats, didn't they? Because they didn't have a great leader with them. You know, that's what it's like. We need to make sure that we're not the ones holding the corporate back. Secondly, we can all rally ourselves around the thing that unites us the most. And it's not a thing that unites us the most. It's a person, and his name is Christ. Rally around Christ and the gospel and make sure we're not the ones holding the rest back like we see happening in Israel, in David's time, and in Joshua's time. When we experience defeats in the midst of great victories, we feel as if God has abandoned us and rejected us just like David and the Israelites did. But if we hold fast to God's promises, just like David does in the rest of this psalm, we hold fast to God's promises in his word, we will have great victory, and victory is just on the horizon. Notice the 12th verse. He said, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And as we study the historical narrative, God did tread down David's foes later on. Folks, be meditating on the 60th Psalm. Everyone in here knows what it's like to have everything going great. Life is good. Life is wonderful. The blessings of God are flowing. Victories one after another. And then all of a sudden, like an earthquake, you're stunned and you're staggered with the defeat. Study the 60th Psalm to find out how to weather those storms. Thank you for being here. May God richly bless you. Go in peace.